Now, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, uh, and for the Jew, the setting of this story is so not kosher, right? I mean, there is so much going on in this passage that for the Jewish person would be considered unclean, beginning with the pigs. Uh, Pigs were considered an unclean animal. Uh, Jewish folks, if they were having a kosher diet, then they certainly would not eat pigs. Uh, And so they would have no reason to farm pigs. Uh, And so the pigs are considered unclean. Uh, Graveyards, tombs, the place of the dead was considered unclean. Uh, This story is happening near or around or just outside of the Decapolis. Uh, Deca meaning ten, polis meaning city, the area of the ten cities. And which is widely known historically to be Gentile country. And so if you're a Jewish person, uh, the Gentile person is considered kind of outside, not part of the crowd, not part of the crowd. They're considered unclean. And we know this because what Paul is wrestling with theologically in a lot of his letters is our Gentile p- folks who are, uh, who are uh, coming to faith in Jesus as Messiah, are they in the in crowd now, right? Like this is one of the major theological drivers of the New Testament is this divide between Jew and Gentile. So you have pigs, you have graveyards, you have Gentile country. I mean, clearly uh, Jesus is outside of Jewish territory. Uh, But even there, even there, amidst all of this that is considered unclean, even amidst what it could very easily be called and is called evil spirits, Jesus has authority to heal and to restore. Um, Now, the reason this is important is, you know, Jesus, he's the Messiah, the Savior. We would say, of course, he has authority to go into the realm of, of that which is unclean and evil to restore and to heal. But here's the deal. In a lot of situations, we tend to think that Jesus's purity and his holiness makes it so that he can't go into those unclean places. And so what we tend to do sometimes is when we see ourselves as unclean or when we see ourselves as participating in that which is not benefiting to human beings or, or to, well, we, put it, we kind of soften it, but when we participate in evil, how many times do we exempt ourselves from the work of the Holy Spirit because, oh, we're not worthy, Right? And so we might say that, oh, sure, like just kind of outside of context or in a vacuum, we might say, yeah, Jesus, of course, has authority for that. But when we see the uncleanness in ourselves, particularly during the Lenten season, we we might be tempted to exempt ourselves from the holiness of God and his work in our lives. Oh, I'll never be good enough or God could never do that for me. But here's the reality. It isn't that Jesus' holiness and purity sort of exempts him from moving into these places that are unclean, evil, sinful, but rather it is, in fact, Jesus' purity and holiness itself that allows him to move into those spaces and begin to have authority to heal and to restore. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we were looking at the prophet Isaiah uh, where, where the prophet comes into contact with the holiness of God and says, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then a burning coal comes from the altar, touches his lips. And he says, here I am, God, send me. And we talked about how holiness is the contagious agent, right? That was way more exciting than you're letting on. But, uh, but, but this is good news, right? It's It's the holiness and the purity of God revealed in Christ that allows him to move into those spaces and heal. 
And how often we say, oh, God is so pure and holy that he can't touch sin. But if we understand that, we're not reading the Gospels, right? It's Jesus' purity, his holiness, that moves into this unclean place and begins to heal and to restore. And that is good news. And so as a whole, this picture is kind of painting, this, this passage of Scripture is painting this picture of the power of Christ and the authority of Christ to reach even into the realms of evil in order to heal. So that, with that kind of in mind and with that, that, that frame of mind and that context for the passage as a whole, let's explore one of those details. And it's found in verse 9. Uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 9. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? What is your name? It occurs to me that we cannot be set free from that which we cannot name. It occurs to me that we cannot cast out spirits that we cannot name. It occurs to me that we cannot repent of sins that we cannot name. You see, it's significant because to name something is to discover its character. To name something is to discover its character. To name something is to expose it in some way. You'll notice that in many cases, a name identifies character or tells you something about that person or that thing. That, that is, if it doesn't have a name, it's anonymous, it's ambiguous, it's sort of out there, we don't know what it is, it's a mystery. But the second you name it, it brings clarity to that thing and it allows you then to deal with it, whatever it is. Now in speaking to, of the significance of names, let me tell you this. Children did not come easy for Amy and I. Uh, we prayed and we prayed and we prayed for a child, and month after month after month, which turned into years, and there was nothing but bad news. But finally, Amy was pregnant with our first child, and toward the end of her pregnancy, we're thinking about names as you do. And as we were thinking about names, we, we were kind of dealing with a lot of things. We didn't know the gender, so we needed a gender-neutral name, you know. And, and, and so we were doing that whole thing, and, and, and we, we landed on this name, Jaden. And we thought, you know, we really like that name. There's a lot that we love about the name. And so we go to the, you know, the baby name websites. There's a million of them out there, and it kind of gives you the, the meaning of all these names. Well, when we clicked Jaden into the, the web browser, we, we learned that one of the meanings of Jaden is God has heard. We were blown away. And we thought, this has to be this child's name that we have prayed for, that we have waited for year after year. This has to be that this child will bear witness to the faithfulness of God. And I know that that's not how the story ends for everybody, right? That kind of walks that journey. It doesn't always end that way. But, but for us, it did. And so we wanted to name this child to bear witness to the fact that God had heard and answered our cries. And so a name means not something. And so to this day, we get to look Jaden in the eye and tell her what her name means. To name something is to lose ambiguity and bring specificity. <laughs> That's a fancy word, right? 
To name something is to bring it out into the open. To, To bring it into the light and give it a name is to discover its true character. Now, if you think I'm making too big of a deal out of this, this is actually made clear in the text. Because up to this point, up to that question in the text, the demon is referred to in the singular me. What do you want from me? Don't torture me. Jesus says, what is your name? And the demon replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Right? All of a sudden the pronouns change. And we go from singular me to plural we. For we are many. Send us among the pigs. And let me tell you, if that sends a chill down your spine, then you're getting it. (laughs) The true character of something is given when you name it. The true character of that which holds us and holds us back is exposed when we dare to name it. One of the central practices of Lent is the confession of sin, or what we sometimes call around here the recognition of need. Uh, one of the like, central practices of the Lenten season is to kind of take inventory of our lives and, and begin to recognize and lament the things which aren't right. Um, and, and sometimes we can get a sense of that which is wrong, but we can't really, but we fall short of naming it. Uh, we we kind of can point in that direction. We can kind of say, I think it has something to do with this that's really holding me back spiritually, that's holding me back personally, that, that, that's kind of got me all entangled. Uh, and so, but, but sometimes we can point in the direction, but we fall short of naming it. My encouragement to you on this second Sunday in Lent is to do the reflective work of naming the thing that is holding you back. Because it occurs to me that we cannot be set free from that which we cannot name. And some of you might say, well, I don't even know how to go about this. And to which I would say, the Holy Spirit is there to help reveal and help you name it. Notice it isn't the man who says, oh, you know, I already know my name. It's Jesus that brings that out. And in fact, in the presence of Jesus, the, the man approaches him. And so, so it's, it's, it's this reality that the Holy Spirit does a lot of the work. What we need to do is open ourselves up to the work of the Spirit so that he might reveal those things and give us language for knowing what it is that holds us back. And oftentimes, we can confess our sin, and and we often do, particularly during Lent. Uh, But have you ever noticed that when we do corporate confessions, there's no, it's all ambiguous, right? It's pretty ambiguous. Um, Lord, we confess for all the things that we've done that aren't in line with your will. We confess for this and that. Uh, But they're not really naming things. And so I would encourage you to do the reflective work of personally naming Maybe the things that are holding you back so that you might be set free from them this Lenten season. Is it anxiety, depression, lust, greed, substance abuse, self-hatred, resentment, 
The list could go on and on and on of the things that hold us back and need to be named in our lives. Because naming them allows for them to be brought into full light so that we can then work with them and deal with them through the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You with me? And so sometimes there's things that we just struggle with that are holding us back, and then sometimes there are, there are times when we are uh, victimized, where, where we are, uh, where principalities and powers come against us. And in those cases, I, I, I think the principle remains the same, that that when we, when we feel the impact of these principalities and the, these powers, this evil coming against us, if we cannot name it, we cannot heal from it. And so I think the principle is the, still the same, that we need to name the pain so that the Holy Spirit might be, so that thing might be able to be brought out into the open, brought out into the light, and then with the, with, with the help of the Holy Spirit and probably a good counselor, right? <laughs> probably some people around you, a system of support that begins to say, let's work with this now that we've named it. And so sometimes we need to name the principalities and powers that have come against us. And maybe their names are things like betrayal. Or maybe their name is something like abuse. Or maybe there's a time where someone lied about me and started defaming my character. Maybe there's a sense of, I I said this, I did this, and all of a sudden I feel exposed or judged, and I don't like to feel exposed. Name the pain is the first step to the healing process. Because Jesus says to this man who is riddled with evil spirits, what is your name? Are you catching me today? (laughs) And I'm not trying to be like too overdramatic. And I'm not trying to say that, that name it and then it's all done and you're healed. But rather naming it is one of the first steps of overcoming it with the help of the Holy Spirit and a system of support and community around you. I think we also must live with this reality. That sin isn't just personal, it's also corporate. And that if we're going to live in the reality of the kingdom of Christ, we must name things that need to be called out. Like racism, misogyny, narratives of toxic masculinity, addiction to violence, which addiction to violence is really the inability for discourse, right? The inability to have proper discourse in society. Um, because it occurs to me that we cannot repent of the sins that, which can't, that we cannot name or that we have not named. And so there's, there, there's both this kind of real personal element to it. What are the things that are holding me back? What are the things that have come against me, maybe through the sin or actions of other people, and now I'm bearing the brunt of that? And then what are the things that just kind of together need to be named and called out? so that we can begin to deal with them. Because the truth is, we cannot be set free from that which we cannot name. We cannot heal from the pain that has not been named. We cannot repent of sins that have not been called out and brought into the light. 
Because here's the thing, if we aren't willing to name these things, they remain anonymous and ambiguous. They remain in the shadows. And the shadows is where sin goes to gain strength. You see, the man, we're told that the man was living among the tombs, which is to say he was living in isolation. (laughs) And it's there that the evil spirits can begin to flourish and the demons that he's dealing with can begin to flourish is there in isolation among the tombs. But once it is brought out into the open and named, it is seen for what it is. First, it starts with a me and it ends with an us because now the true character of that thing is revealed. Are you with me? And so until we are willing to call these things what they are, they remain strong and they remain in the shadows. And so sometimes it's the people of God, the truth tellers, the truth seekers who need to be first to name something and call it out for that which it is. Oh, but that can be so hard to do. Here's the other thing I want to point out about this passage. Now, the man's story is a bit dramatic, right? Uh, It's an extreme example. (laughs) Uh, So we might say, oh, there's no point of identification here. Like, you know, I'm not living among tombs, naked, cutting myself with stones. Like, we, we we may say we can't really identify this with this. It's an extreme example, yes, but it also shows us an important reality. Uh, Because the scripture, remember Mark, not big on details, but offers lots of details, gives us lots of details about what this man was like while under the oppression of the spirits and then what he was like after being set free by Christ. We're given a picture of both. And here's the important reality that I want want to show. Is that when you look at these two pictures, the evil spirits, the oppression, the sin... We find that it is sin that makes us less human and robs us of our humanity. That the man's, again, the man's dwelling place among the tombs is really meant to function in the story as a symbol, for this man is almost dead, right? He's a, he's a, he's the live, he's a living dead man. He's a shell of a man. After being under the oppression of these spirits for so long, it has robbed him of his humanity, so now he literally lives among the tombs. So the spirits that haunt him, the sin that he's dealing with, have turned him into a less than human character. And Tolkien does a great job of this, right? We have the perfect literary example of this very truth in the character Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. His obsession with the ring of power and his lust for power rots his mind and his soul until he moves from just being the shell of a man, this little creature (laughs) that crawls along the ground and can think of nothing other than possessing the ring of power to the point where he calls it his precious. And I'll spare you the voice. (laughs) I mean, what a picture! What a picture that Tolkien gives us of what sin does to us. And what we so often attribute our sinfulness is to our humanness, right? Oh, I'm only human. 
But sin actually robs us of our image-bearing, beautiful humanity. And it isolates us from ourselves and from others. And so when we, what we get in this, in this story, when we look at this picture, this picture, this first picture of a man under the oppression of sin and evil spirits has become just something like less than human, a dead man walking, living among the tombs, to a man fully restored, who is clothed and in his right mind. Yeah, <laughs> right? Let's, let's give a shout for clothing, right? So you have like, this man is clothed, he's in his right mind, and here's what he wants to do. He wants to attach himself to a new kind of addiction. Jesus, I just want to go with you all the time, to which we would say, yeah, that's great. But Jesus says no and restores him back to humanity and back to his family and back to community. Are you with me? What Jesus does in the, this man's life is he restores his image-bearing humanity and then restores him back into community. In other words, out of isolation. Oh, man. When Jesus sets this, this man free of the spirits, his humanity is restored. The image of God in him is restored, and he's brought back into the village, back to his family, back to community, to which I would say, what a beautiful picture of the work of Christ. This is the restorative work of Jesus Christ in the world, returning people to the dignity of their image-bearing selves so that they might become fully who God designed them to be. So, Can you imagine this? Let's get our theology right. God has placed inside each and every human being a, a little picture, a little image of himself. Sin scars that image, robs us of that image, robs us of our humanity, and in comes Jesus announcing the kingdom of God, and in it doing ministry that again and again begins to restore people to their image-bearing humanity so that they might properly reflect God once again as who they truly are. Oh man, talk about good news. This is good news. It's phenomenal news. In fact, if you read the Gospels carefully, what you realize is that this is Jesus' work. <laughs> Jesus' work is performing miracles in people's lives in order that they might be restored back to community. He's giving people back their own humanity because their humanity is a gift because it bears his image. I think too, too, too much in the church we've kind of said, oh, this is terrible humanity, right? And, and yes, we deal with sin, absolutely. We got, some, we got some oppression that we need to deal with, that we need to call out, that we need to name. My Easter message that I'm working on is, yeah, we kind of deserve to be in ashes, but we didn't start in ashes. We started as beautiful, image-bearing human beings. And then we came along and we decided to take this whole thing our own direction. But each and every one of us, each and every one of you, is a beautiful, image-bearing human being that God desires to restore that image back in you. And then allow that image to grow and grow and grow. The fancy word for that is discipleship, <laughs> right? Growth, maturity. You'll notice this even when Jesus is calling out sin. 
See, sometimes when you start thinking in this direction, people are like, but what about sin, right? Jesus, in the Gospels, calls out sin, gives it a name, right? Says, this is what it is. But even in, when he's calling out sin, he doesn't dehumanize or shame the sinner. But he's always lovingly pointing people back to what, what theologian Richard Rohr calls their true selves. It's a beautiful picture. Now here's the deal. I'm convinced that if we, it, I'm convinced that we um, think that if we name the sin, we'll be mastered by it. So we don't want to name it. Right? We, we think that if we, if we name the thing, we bring it out into the open, we see it for what it is, we're, we're tempted to think that that's going to mean that we're going to be mastered by it. But actually, it's quite the opposite. That if we are willing to name the sin, name the pain, name the principalities and powers that have come against us, what we do is we expose their true nature and allow the healing and humanizing work of Christ to begin in our lives. So it isn't that you name it and then you're mastered by it. It's that you're actually mastered by it until you name it. I thought for sure I'd get more amens there. I was just going to let it fly. Just let it, just let it rest until that sunk in, right? But, but sometimes we're mastered by it and we don't even know it. And then we refuse to name it because we feel that we'll be mastered by it when in fact we already are. So my encouragement again to you is this. Personally, begin to reflect. Are there things that are holding me back? Are there demons? <laughs> Evil spirits? Is there sin that's holding me back from being the image-bearing humanity that God wants me to be? And if there is, at least part of the puzzle in allowing the Holy Spirit to begin to heal that is calling it out and naming it and exposing it for what it is. Because we tend to soften the language, right? We don't want to, when we're talking about kind of what we deal with or the oppressive kind of principalities and powers in the world, we always want to soften the language. We always want to call it something a little bit nicer than what it is. <laughs> and I think the truth-telling work for the people of God is being willing to do the hard work of naming it. Because discipleship and maturity is movement toward our image-bearing humanity, not away from it. Discipleship and maturity is movement toward our image-bearing humanity, not away from it. And so give those things a name, expose their damaging nature, and allow God to begin his restoring work in you. That is what Lent is all about. Lent is like this season set aside to do the hard work of reflection and discernment and saying, is there anything in my life that needs to be named so that we can begin the work of healing and overcoming, and begin the work of restoration. That's what Lent is about. Because then, if you do that during Lent, and you name it, 
and God begins to stir in you and work in you and begin to bring restoration, and you realize after naming it that you once were dead and living among the tombs. You were a dead man walking, and then you begin to be set free, and you start to, it starts to feel a lot like a resurrection. It starts to feel like a new life. Then guess what? Easter shines a little brighter. <laughs> you with me? And so that's the wisdom behind what we do. And again, I would want to say that there's space and there's necessity for doing this on a personal level, absolutely. But let's not also negate the space and the necessity of doing this on a corporate level. Are there things going on that need to be called out, named? How do we do those? How do we begin to overcome those in our world and in our society as we proclaim the reality of the kingdom of God? Amen?